Okay, there we go. All right. There's four. For the tape, there are four people in the room here tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 13 this evening. And we find ourselves with, again, rejoining uh, Moses in his second of five sermons to the children of Israel on the theme of obedience prior to their entrance into the promised land. And he declares in chapter 13, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you. But he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now, he talks here about false prophets and false dreamers. And a false prophet is simply a person who stands up and declares that they are speaking for God, but they are not. A uh, dreamer, a false dreamer, is one who stands up and declares that they have received a revelation from God in the form of a dream, but they have not received a revelation uh, from, from God in the form of that dream. So that's what a false uh, prophet and a false dreamer are. Prophets, dreams, a word of prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, the gift of leading, the gift of teaching, these different gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and listed also in the book of Romans and also in the book of Ephesians. Those are legitimate gifts. Those are wonderful gifts. And I think that one of the great temptations, since this church has been around now for 23 years, by the grace of God, but one of the great temptations after a while of leading a church and God blessing His Word in the church is sometimes a temptation to move away from the supernatural of this Christian life. And there can be a tendency to look and say, well... You know, God is doing a nice work here. It's a good work. And so let's just play it super safe. Let's jettison the whole supernatural element of this thing in terms of teaching and preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's just teach the Word, and that's a lot safer. And, and, and it is a lot safer, and it's a lot cleaner. Uh, as people, myself included, uh, learn about spiritual gifts as we uh, grow in, in spiritual gifts. And every Christian has received a supernatural spiritual gift from God. Sometimes the learning curve can be a little bit messy. But it's worth the mess and it's worth the learning curve. I think that one of the great mistakes that is a, has occurred in the last ten years or so in the body of Christ, it isn't like some gigantic terrible things, but I see... I see a, um, a, a byproduct uh, casualty is if you take the supernatural of this Christian life away, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the power and the moving and hearing the Holy Spirit and prayer, the leading of the Holy Spirit, there is within people a sense, that, a search for the supernatural. And uh, you've got all these psychic hotlines and all this kind of stuff and horoscopes. And it all speaks to people's desire for the supernatural. And, and so that, that is there. And God has the supernatural for us, but he's got safe supernatural in the form of the gifts. And if you take that away, I think that people, and especially younger people, will leave and search for it. And if they feel that, it is not a part of the package that God has put together in Christianity, they will look for it somewhere else. And they will discover a supernatural, to be sure, but a very dangerous supernatural in, in the world. So we have to be careful 
that as we see warnings about a misuse of these different things, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. To be careful of that. And so these gifts of the Holy Spirit, very, very important. Now he's going to talk about when you give a false prophecy or a false dreamer and all, there to be stoned. I don't want that to keep any of you from going to the afterglow uh, tomorrow night. We'll just club you with bowling balls and the first mistake you make. As we'll see in a moment is, is that he's talking about uh, the false here. And, um, but they are specifically, they're, they are not only false, but they are deliberately false with the purpose of leading people away from the worship of the true and the living God to the worship of something else or someone else. So in our growth curve related to spiritual gifts, we may flub here and there as we're kind of growing in things, but there's no need to stone anyone. We've never stoned anyone in an afterglow on things. So it's a little bit different in afterglows. We do our best to hear the Lord and share a verse or share a prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. They're very peaceful, by the way. Very, very beautiful. I mean, there's very little correction that goes on in them. Uh, in this fellowship, that in, because there's very little that's needed, and uh, or guidance really on them, they're overseen, and uh, but it's, that's a little different than here. But what it does teach us here, this passage teaches us, is that it is a very serious thing to stand up and say, "Thus saith the Lord," to say that I'm going to speak for God. Right now, this is God's message. When a person does that. They really better have God's message. And, uh, and so this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that's happening. Let's, t- let's look at the consequences if they end up being false. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order, notice, to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to uh, Um, entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. And so if somebody gets up and uh, under the Old Testament law and they gave a, a false dream or they gave a false prophecy and it was intended to draw people away from the worship of the Lord to the worship of some uh, uh, other god or some other idol then they were to be stoned and uh, so uh, pretty uh, serious business now one of the things that uh, is interesting as he speaks about here in verse 2 he says even if they give a prophecy or they give a dream and it's coupled with a sign or a wonder, with a miracle. I think one of the things that we have to be careful of as Christians is to realize that God isn't the only one that does miracles. So, so here they come and they give a prophecy and then boom, they raise someone from the dead. Uh, they take someone out of a wheelchair and they're completely healed. And so often people look and say, wow, only God can do that. I mean, their prophecy must be true. It must be real. Their dream must be true, must be real. Mm-mm. God isn't the only one that does the supernatural at this time in human history. The Bible says the devil has his servants, and they're very capable of, of doing miracles in the, from the dark side, from you know, demonic power. And so when you see something that is said that pulls me away from God, or the following after God, even if it's confirmed with a miracle, I'm to reject it is a Christian. So you hear something, you hear a prophecy, first thing I do is I test it by the Word of God. Does that match uh, the Word of God? If it doesn't match the Word of God, then out it goes. I, if it violates the Word of God, then it's not of the Lord. And even if there's a miracle to confirm it, I still reject it. It's interesting that Jesus, when He came and he did all kinds of miracles and uh, and yet he never asked people to believe in him solely or even supremely on the basis of the miracles but he came and what he spoke and what he taught and what he spoke for God it was in line with the Old Testament scriptures it confirmed the Old Testament scriptures and so he said I didn't come to break the law I came to fulfill the law and so he did and God confirmed his teaching with uh, signs and wonders. So no amount of miracles are to be given any weight if they violate 
the Scriptures. That's it, to test it by the Scriptures. And then the second thing I have to look at is, and I always, one of the things that I do is when I see someone that's speaking for God and that, all that stuff that's going on, I always ask myself, does this look like how Christ would do it? Because there's a, um, you know, one of the names of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is the Spirit of Christ. So I ask myself, does it look like Christ? And one of the great things, uh, ways that a, a prophet or a dreamer or anyone exercising spiritual gifts should uh, operate in terms of Christ-likeness is that they point people to the Father, they point them to God. Jesus is constantly pointing people to the Father. So I ask myself, who does this point me to? Sometimes you can hear a prophecy and a, man, I mean, not sometimes, a lot of times on certain channels on the television, it's a prophecy rama when they're raising money. And you just, you've got the realization they're not pointing to me to God. They're trying to set me up and separate me from my wallet. And so they're not pointing me to God. They're pointing me to something else. And I, I feel very free to just uh, steer clear of that, reject it as being of the Lord. I remember one time, many, well, forget it. Um, <laughs> Anyway, enough said uh, on that, uh, and, uh, but it's to be tested uh, in that, that kind of a way. And so the supernatural, even, I mean, wrong words, if they're confirmed by the supernatural, we don't look and say, all right, I drop my guard now as a Christian and believe everything this person says. Our work is just starting. I've got to test and say, does it match the word and where are they trying to lead me? And if they try to lead me away from the Lord, then it's an evil and he calls for them to be uh, put, uh, put to death. And so the Lord has got a, a very, very strong way of dealing with this. You say, wow, that's pretty heavy capital punishment for being a false prophet or a false dreamer. Yeah, it is, it is strong. And the reason that it's strong is that in order to... Uh, speak to us about uh, what a big deal it is to speak for God. But you know, if somebody comes and gives me lousy financial advice, or Congress, or the United States of America, or the whole... Somebody gives me bad financial advice, or they give me bad personal advice, or they give me bad medical advice, the consequences, even if it's a terrible thing, are temporal. To do what these people are doing has the potential to affect people's eternities. And so God has a zero tolerance for pulling people away from him and, and pulling them to the worship of other gods. It's basically kidnapping. You're stealing his children from him, which was a capital crime, wasn't it? The Old Testament law. I'd like it to be a capital crime again, but enough about me and uh, what I'd like to have done. And, and so this is uh, how God views it. He views this kind of thing very, very seriously. And it's not just, um, you know, some prophet or some dreamer that, you know, that stands up in a church somewhere, stands up in some kind of a religious setting, or we hear on a street corner or something. Notice in verse 6, if your brother, what? My brother? The son of your mother? Your son? My son? or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, your kindred spirits, if any of them secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people which are all around you, that is Canaan, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. You cast the first stone. So this isn't a lynch mob. This is a, an ordered, uh, decent and order um, judgment being meted out. You shall, your hand shall be first against him, even this kind of blood relative, to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, and you shall stone him with stones until he dies. <laughs> That's how serious it is to God. No relationship, no relationship 
in our life, no human relationship is more important than our relationship with God. Every once in a while I have a Christian come up to me and talk with me about this or that and someone is forcing them to choose between their relationship with God and them. I always tell them the same thing. This is tough. We want to be what God wants us to be in this situation. It's a miserable place that you're being put in here. But no relationship is more important in life than the relationship that you have with Christ. And it's never to be sacrificed for any reason. And, and so here is this um, dealing with it, even when it involves these kind of blood relationships, we're not to follow them uh, into this. Jesus warned in the same vein. Now today, we don't stone people over that. I will have a water baptism at 3 and a stoning at 4 o'clock in the courtyard. So we're going to do that in the New Covenant, um, it, it, but it's still serious. And today, what we do is this kind of stuff happens and we keep it from influencing our lives individually and influencing the church, but we leave it in God's hands now to take care of, of uh, the big picture of this kind of stuff that goes on uh, in the world and around the body of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, pulls him away into idolatry, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Better than that? What could be, how could that be better than something else? Oh, there is something that is better than what, what awaits them. So we don't enforce it today. Uh, God will, will one day take care of all of it. But it's just as serious to the Lord today as it was in the time of Moses. Jesus also said in Luke chapter 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate by comparison uh, our love for God, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And so here is a thing where we don't stone our family members or anything like that, but we are ruthless in cutting ourselves off from their influence and their attempt to pull us into uh, any kind of danger, any kind of idolatry. So the Lord just has a zero tolerance for this. Verse 12, he goes on, and uh, wait a second, no, no, don't give me jumping verses here. Verse 10, you shall stone him with stones until he dies, and then here it is, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of of bondage, trying to pull you away from God. There's eternal consequences with that. And so all Israel shall hear and fear and not uh, again do such wickedness as this among you. So God apparently uh, believes in a deterrent value to capital punishment. So word would get out, listen, uh, they stoned Alex, so uh, let's not do any more false prophecies around here. Word would get out among God's people. And, and it would be a deterrent related to that. Well, what happens if it goes into a whole city here in verse 12? If you hear someone in one of your cities which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in saying, corrupt men have go out, gone out from among you and entice the inhabitants of their city saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire. So here's the situation you've got. You've got... Now you've got one guy that's trying to uh, influence through false dreams or prophecies or a family member trying to entice another family member. Here's a thing where a group, some group of people comes into a Jewish city and uh, they start to speak these false things and they lead the entire city into idolatry. Now the tendency that we can sometimes have is to look and say, wow, I mean, once a city's infiltrated with idolatry, there's not much you can, you can do about that, can you? I mean, we could go in and do something if one or two people were engaged in it, or five or ten or something like that. But I mean, once a whole city's given over to idolatry, I mean, we just have to kind of learn to live with that, don't we? It's just, no, we don't have to learn to live with that. He had a plan for that. Again, we can't do that, so don't be going downtown after the service and taking the law into your hands. But when that kind of thing would happen, he said, then you shall inquire, find out what's going on. Is the whole city now serving idols, you know, in the land of Israel? This is, you know, blood-bought land. 
and uh, you shall inquire. So there is, there's caution and there, it's, it's carefully investigated. You'll search it out, ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock with the edge of the sword. So the whole thing was to be wiped out. Why? The leaven leavens the whole lump. So you've got a group of people in the city. Got a whole city. In Israel, United States of America. And they say, I don't care what God says. I'm not going to worship Him. I'm going to worship what I want to worship. And I don't care what it does to our nation. I don't care what it does to God's people. I don't care what it does to people in general. I'm going to elevate my selfishness and my wickedness above the health of the nation and of God's plans attached to the nation, which as it relates to Israel has to do with the salvation of the whole world, because he's going to bring the Messiah into the world through Israel. But the elevation of wickedness and selfishness to such a degree as is, I don't care what happens to people, I don't care what happens to God's plan. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, you have that in a city, that's not going to stay in one city. That's going to move from city to city to city to city till the whole land is filled with that kind of sin and idolatry and leaven. And now God's plan gets, gets destroyed as a result of it. Or, or at least hindered. And so this is the kind of thing that they've got going on here in the, in the situation, how serious it is, and, uh, and again, eternal consequences for human history. And the Lord says, no, we're not going to put up with that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and utterly destroy it. And you shall gather, verse 16, all of its splendor into the middle of the street, and you shall completely burn with fire the city, all of its splendor, for the Lord your God, and it shall be a heap forever, it shall not be built again. Now God does something interesting here. Because he says you just burn the city and burn everything in it. In other words, you can't have like Stockton going to God and saying, Hey, I think over there in Modesto they're wor worshiping idols. Because they want our arch. And so they set up this whole thing, and you know how people from Stockton are. I'm just kidding. There's some in our, the room right now. So this was to be the kind of thing where nobody in doing this could profit from this in any way. It kept the motives pure. It was just obedience to God. We have nothing to gain from it materially. It is, a, uh, it is the wiping out of idolatry in our midst. And so none of the accursed things that remain in your hand uh, shall remain in your hand in order that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show your mercy, have compassion on you, and multiply you just as he swore to your fathers. In other words, do this because I want to do good f uh, for you. It's good for you not to have idolatry take over uh, the land. Look at, uh, look at our country, for instance. Now, And I know we're not Israel by any means. But you see what has happened by the, just, a, just takes a small group of people, percentage-wise, to say, I want to live my life however I want to live my life. Whatever wickedness that means, whatever expression of wickedness that, that means, and, you know, the whole nation just has to deal with that. And it, and it puts that nation in, in danger. And it, it, it starts to take this sin and put it right into, into our midst. And, and then it, it, it puts a judgment over our, our nation just because this group of people have no concern for anything but their own sin and their wickedness. Because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Chapter 14. He said, you are the children of the Lord your God, and you shall not cut yourself nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
And so they were to reject the uh, pagan mourning rites at the time of death that were practiced in Canaan at that time. And uh, what they would do is uh, when a loved one would die or some kind of uh, person that they cared about, whether it was a blood or whether it was a friend or something like that, in order to, um, in just the wildness of trying to express uh, their grief and that kind of thing, they would take out knives and they would cut themselves. And this happens around the world even today. And they would uh, kind of go into a frenzy and part of it was just this expression of grief and part of it was uh, just kind of a, a ritual that would be performed to their gods, thinking that their gods demanded this kind of thing. God says, now, when you go into the land, that's how they handle death there. But you're not like everybody else in the world and I don't want you to handle or to process uh, death the way that the Canaanites process death. And so here he, he speaks to him, you're a holy people, you're a different people, and I want that to be revealed in even how you process death as a child of God. And so he, he didn't want him doing any of that kind of stuff. And the Bible says the very same thing about us as Christians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks about the fact that when, as Christians, when someone that we love who is a Christian dies, that we sorrow over that. And we do sorrow over that. There's so many people I, I, I want to see again so bad that are in heaven ahead of me. So we sorrow when they go. And there's a real void that happens in our life. So it's not to minimize the grief that we're, we're feeling. But the Bible says we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. As those who do not have the confidence that we will one day see them again because of their faith in Christ. You ever been to a funeral of an unsaved person? It's, it's about the worst experience. I, I, it, I can hardly endure them to just sit there and there's no hope in the room. And I just have to sit there and say, Lord, help me to keep my mouth shut, Lord. Because I, I just want to stand up and preach the gospel in that room, but it's not my place to do that. So maybe I'll be Elijah, you know, or a light, or, or um, uh, um, uh, Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel, lay on one side, you know, up at the front, and things feel like that. I mean, they're pretty bold. But you sit there, and I mean, there's just no hope in the room. It's sad. It's sad. And then you go to a Christian coronation service, celebrating their crowning upon getting into heaven. And you watch people sorrow. I mean, it's hard. Married 50 years, 60 years. Do you know how united two lives are in Christ after that kind of time? Man, it's hard. And then someone gets up and says, well, I remember this. And I remember the, and the, 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 their faith in Christ and this, and all of a sudden is talking about faith in the Lord and salvation when they gave their life to the Lord, the life that they lived in the Lord. And I mean, yeah, it's still a difficult environment, but, but the windows of heaven have been opened up. And, it, and I'm so proud in a sanctified way when I watch Christians process the difficulty of death in a way that's completely different from the world. And everyone can see it. And it is hard. One of the interesting things about, we were, when we were created by God, we were never created to experience death. We were never created to process death. It's not in the software. It's not in the hardware. To process death, we've got to have resources from God to do that. But then you see someone stand up and they, and they walk through it, giving the Lord glory and looking at it from the eternal perspective. And that then influences the family and then the neighbors and these things. And I just go, that is so great because they're modeling the handling of death in a way that's different from the world because they are different from the world. In verse 3 he goes on and he starts to talk about 
something that we look back on back in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 11 where he gives them, talks to them about some of their dietary laws and what they could eat, what they couldn't eat and that kind of thing and uh, the list that's here is virtually identical to Leviticus chapter 11 doesn't mean we're going to skip it you guys but when we look at this once again I think it's good to be reminded we'll move very quickly through it by the way but it's good for us to be reminded that Obviously, there were health reasons for, behind some of these restrictions in terms of their food. Um, the not eating of pork, no refrigeration in those days, that kind of thing. No eating of shellfish, you know, dangers that might be related to fish that they wouldn't you know, know for maybe uh, thousands of years until the, the modern age. But mostly, these commandments are given supremely to remind the children of Israel of the importance of holiness, of separateness. So when they ate certain things and they didn't eat other things, there wasn't some big gigantic point other than we eat these things and we don't eat these things because we're a different people, because we're God's people. And we're a holy people in, in the world. And so in this way, every single meal that they ate, God was re reinforcing in their hearts the message that they're a holy people serving a holy God in an unholy world and, and that they are a holy people and they are to be holy in every area of their lives. And since we eat... Um, about as often as we do anything in life, then you couldn't have a more frequent kind of thing to remind us that we're a different kind of people than at each and every meal. Now, for us as Christians, the Bible says we're not under the Old Testament law, which I'm always thankful for when I go to Mimi's. I like those eggs and that French toast and the whole thing, and there's just something about salty bacon that's just fabulous. I couldn't have it, you know, if I was under the Old Testament law. So we just give thanks to the Lord for that food and that we're no longer under the law. And, uh, but the Bible says that we can, as Christians, because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, uh, no food needs to be refused as long as it's received with thanksgiving. And so uh, that's what we do, and we're able to, we're not under the restrictions of, of any of this, this kind of thing. But as Christians, we're to have a great concern for, same great concern for holiness as the children of Israel uh, had. And so the test that we put things to, including what we eat, is will this bring glory to God and and that's that's the test therefore whether you eat or drink Paul wrote to the Corinthians or whatever you do do all to the glory of God and I happen to be able to eat bacon to the glory of God and I do my little heart dances and God sees it and he's pleased I'm pleased it's fabulous you shall not eat any detestable things and and, and he prohibits some things here that I'm glad he did I I think we ought to bring some of them back. But anyway, these are the animals which you may eat. Can eat the ox? All right. The sheep? I'm working on that. The goat? Not when there's beef around. The deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, the mountain sheep. You're in trouble killing those today, I'll tell you. So those things you could eat. And you may eat of every animal that has these two qualifications. Number one, they have cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. So they have a cloven hoof, and they choose a cud among an animal. You can eat that. Get the barbecue ready. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these. You can't eat the camel, no problem, the hare, the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they don't have cloven hooves. They're unclean for you. Also the swine, the swine, is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet it doesn't chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. Now he moves on to fish. You may eat, these you may eat of all that are in the waters. And here's the two things they need to have. Eat any fish you want that has fins and scales. 
And whatever does not have fins or scales, you may not eat. It's unclean for you. Moves on to birds. All clean birds you may eat. He doesn't list what the clean birds are. We know doves are clean. We know pigeons are clean. We know quail are clean. He provided quail out in that wilderness as a kind of a judgment against them. So he doesn't list the clean ones, but he does list the unclean ones. And uh, a lot of them are uh, kind of predatory birds or they are uh, birds that eat roadkill and that kind of stuff. So they, they eat flesh that, um, uh, that hasn't been properly bled. So maybe that's something behind it. These you shouldn't eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, the kite, after all their kinds, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the... Somebody help me. Okay. Listen, I can guess. Just teasing you. Okay. All right. We'll show uh, for the tape. This one's got a stunt. The, uh, and the bat. Okay. <laughs> so nobody needed to be told you couldn't eat the bat. And when he talks about the birds in the Hebrew, the word means flying animals. So it included birds, also included other things. So bats... Uh, couldn't eat. Now you say, wow, who would even think about it? People eat all kinds of things. And uh, so also every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eating. This is talking about insects that fly. So those are out, and, um, uh, which I have no problem with. You know, sometimes you go into these exotic stores and they've got like candies, like with a hard candy with a worm in the middle and stuff like that. So what's that all about? That makes money? Come on. So anyway, sometimes I put myself under the law at times like that. So that we don't have to, no insects. And, but it is interesting when we were back in the, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, there were four uh, forms of uh, grasshoppers, locusts, that you could eat because they were not a creeping insect. They don't, they don't crawl through the dirt and get all kind of germs on them. They jump and fly. And those were lawful to eat. And so when John the Baptist ate them with honey, little sweet tooth, completely kosher and in line with the law uh, of Moses. And so you may eat all clean birds. And you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. So you just go out in the field and Bessie is dead or some kind of other animal uh, died on its own. So, and one of the problems with it is that now it's impossible to bleed properly. And the Jews were not to eat the blood. They're not to uh, eat the life, uh, represented the life in an animal. But you may give it to the alien who is in within your gates. Now, this isn't talking about um, E.T. or, you know, something like that. So it's talking about foreigners, talking about Gentiles. You can give it to them uh, within your gates, those who are living with you, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, a Gentile, for you're a holy people to the Lord your God. Sometimes you read that and say, well, wait, if it wasn't good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I can eat it. What's going on here? Well, the, the Gentiles weren't under the law of Moses. So there's no problem with an animal being bled or not bled. They could go make blood sausages with it, like the Germans do. Said, Some of these European cultures, they don't throw anything away on this stuff. And I mean, your starvation in the Middle Ages will make you use everything. So, but the Gentiles were not under the law of Moses. So clearly, this ability to give the animal or sell the animal to a Gentile, it has nothing to do with hygiene or disease or something like that, or God would say, burn the thing up. It has to do with just them representing themselves as a holy people. And, and this is one more way to do that uh, in, in the world. Then he said, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so this was evidently a uh, Canaanite uh, fertility practice. And they would uh, do this kind of 
ritual in order to increase their fertility for having children or increase the fertility of their uh, crops or of their animals. And so the command isn't given for dietary reasons, it's given for idolatry reasons. Now, uh, we looked at this before, but I think it's interesting to look at it for another moment before we leave it. It's kind of a witness to what we really have to be careful as God's people to just let God's word say what it says and adhere to that without adding to it. Today, if you go to Israel and you go to, on a trip to Israel, in the morning they serve dairy. There's no meat that is served in the morning. Fish is served, and, and, but it, it's dairy there. Then in the evening, meat is served, but you can't get any half and half for your coffee. There's no dairy that's served. Phony baloney dairy is served. Some kind of concoction of some kind that will make its way into the kingdom age in terms of a shelf life. But they, they keep them separated uh, in, in that way. And all in an attempt to be faithful to this. You have orthodox, an orthodox Jewish family will have two sets of dishes. One will be used to serve dairy. The other will be used to serve meat at separate meals. They go to that length to make sure that there's no overlap and nothing, you know, porous through the surfaces or anything like that. And, and, but they roll it over to beef and chicken and all these different kinds of, of, of different things. Literally, it's talking about a young goat and its mother's milk. Now, you can't milk a chicken. So I ought to be able to eat chicken just about any time I want with any kind of a dish. But they take it over and they make this big, gigantic thing until you can't get a cheeseburger in Israel. And that's not the end of the world, but it just, you can just become about all of these peripheral issues and, and that becomes the issue rather than a relationship with God. And I, and I mention that as an exhortation to myself. You know, preachers, they're just about the worst in some ways. And, uh, and, you know, most of us have a, a little bit of a legal mind on things. Not toward legalism, but we crunch things and this and this and this and this. And then, I mean, we can make a mountain out of a molehill at times. Yes, we know, Pastor. But anyway, uh, it's it just leave it alone and, and let it say what it says. So, if your journey is too long for you, oh, 22. You shall truly tithe, 10%, give a 10% of all the increase of your grain that the field uh, produces year by year. So their crops come in, 10% was to go to the Lord. It was to be done regularly, year by year. They weren't to do it intermittently. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. Speaking of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil. So you're to bring the a a tenth of your agricultural products uh, to the Lord, to the temple, and give it to the Lord. And also a tenth of the firstborn uh, of your uh, herds and your flocks that was to be brought to the Lord here's the reason that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always every time they brought that tithe or that tenth to the Lord it was an acknowledgement of the fact that Lord I recognize that everything that I have has been given to me by you this last year this is your land this is your everything that I've been blessed with you did it so I'm going to give this to you as an acknowledgement of that. It was also an acknowledgement that, Lord, I give you this tenth to recognize and to communicate beyond words that I recognize that everything that I have belongs to you. Not only you've given it to me, but it all belongs to you. And then the, the third thing that it communicated is, Lord, I want you to know in giving this that I recognize my security is not in my crops or my herds or my flocks, but my security is in you. And to represent that, I give you a tenth as you command. And so that's, that's what they were 
um, uh, to do. And that was the reason, to give respect to the Lord your God always as the source and, and origin and, and the owner of all that we have. But if the journey is too long, so I mean you live uh, maybe hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem when the temple is built, and uh, maybe you've got, a, you've got a big crop of almonds, how are you going to get them down there? Or you got to, I mean, you had, the herds just became so big, and how are you going to get Bessie all the way down there on that, get that cow across all that Jordan Valley and everything? So if the journey's too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, the, the tenth from the field of the herds, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take, put the crop in, put the herd in, and then get the monetary equivalent of it. Then take the money in your hand, that's lighter to, chew, to, to carry, isn't it? Go to the place where the Lord your God chooses, the temple, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. So buy the oxen, buy the sheep that you would have brought, now buy them there. In the area of the temple, use it for the buying of wine or similar drink for whatever your heart desires. Whatever you want to give to the Lord is, is, is to represent your tithe there. You give it to him and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And so they'd bring the tithe and they'd give it to the Lord and then a portion of it would come back to them and then they would eat kind of a communal meal with God at, at that time. And so the Lord said, do that. Now, it, this gives us insight into a, a very uh, powerful New Testament, actually gospel, Jesus thing that happened. Jesus apparently cleared the temple uh, uh, twice in his ministry, or very, once very early in his public ministry and then late in his public ministry. And he went up into the area of the temples where they were selling these animals and the money changers and all these things and and they were ripping people off. Even if people sold their animals and their grain someplace else, and then they came to, um, uh, so they sell them, they come into uh, the uh, uh, Jerusalem now, and they want to buy these sacrifices and all, they would be charged these exorbitant rates for them. So it's like, I was going to, I would be given the Lord 20 cows. I come here, I sell them there up in the Galilee. I come down here and it's enough for two cows? And it was just a big money-making operation in the name of religion. And, and so they were, that's the kind of thing they were doing. They even went to the place, the Jewish religious system, by the time of, of Jesus, they went to the place that even if you lived within a reasonable distance and you brought your animal to sacrifice to the Lord, they would find some fault in it no matter what in order that you would have to buy the more expensive sacrifices that they were selling there. So what they were doing technically wasn't wrong. It was it was actually offering a service that helped people obey the law of Moses. The problem that they got into was to move from being a servant to help people in the worship of God to then looking at people as a way to make money off of them in the name of God. And, and Jesus uh, saw that that was going on and what his father's house, the house of prayer, had been turned into and how people were hating going to church or going to temple because they're going to rip me off again. And so he, he cleaned, cleaned the house out uh, twice. And you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So part of these offerings, God then, where they were given to God, and then God had in his law where a portion of them would go to the tribe of Levi, who were not given a section of the land in order for their physical support. And so if they, if they ceased tithing or giving of these things, then the Levites would have starved as a result. And so said, the Lord said, don't forget that how this arrangement is, and it allows the Levites to stay focused on the things that they're focused on. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe uh, of your produce of that year, store it up within your gates, and the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that... Uh, in, uh, bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. And so uh, 
every third year. We really don't know exactly what this is saying here, and nobody really does today, whether God was saying, all right, every third year, instead of taking your tithe to the temple, store it at the house, and then make it available to the poor in your village or in your town and, and the Levites that are in that area too. Because the Levites, remember, had uh, 48 Levitical cities throughout the land. So it could have been that where every third year the tithe didn't go to the temple. Or it could be that on the third year they would give their regular tithe, but on the third year there would be a second tithe on the remaining 90%, and then that was given to the poor, and God promised that those who were generous with the poor, he would take care of them. Chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a, a release of debts. And uh, so we remember uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament that they, for seven years, they were to farm the land, right? Uh, crops would grow and everything. The seventh year, it was to lay fallow that nobody was to what grew on its own then the poor could get it but the land was to rest every seventh year now he he uh, takes that and he uh, uses that now every seventh year for the release of of servants Jewish servants um, in this kind of a rotation of every seven years if you were a Jew and you had a Jewish uh, person who was a servant to you uh, because of debts notice there in verse 1 on the seventh year you had to release them and so there would be the kind of thing it happens today happens all the time or somebody's going along minding their own business and some kind of a catastrophe happens in the family or a crop fails or this happens or that happens and the margins are real fine in the family and they lose everything and then now this man becomes indebted to whoever his, he owes the money to and what's he going to do? They're going to throw everybody in a poorhouse? So what God did is he arranged a way where a person could then go to the man that he owed the money to and say, I have nothing to pay you with, but I will serve you with my labor to pay off my debt. And it was a great way because it, it allowed, um, it, it kept these debtor prisons from, uh, from developing, but it also allowed the person who owed the debt to pay it off. Because not all debt that occurred in those days was because of some uh, unforeseen thing outside of the control of, of the person. A lot of times debt would occur because of a bad decision or these kind of things. And one of the ways that we learn in life is to then bail ourselves out of that through hard work. And so God wasn't going to just say, yeah, every, you just cancel the whole thing every time it's a, it's a child of God and you just let them go on and keep that pattern happening in their life. He says, no, I want, I want them to work that out, but I want them to have a chance to work that out. And this is the form of the release. This is the technicalities of it. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So if, if this apparently followed that seven-year cycle of the land, so um, every seventh year that, that hit, you would release your servants that were indebted to you, your slaves, in this way you would release them from their debt. Of the foreigner, the Gentile, you may require it, uh, so you don't have to release them, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Except that when there may be uh, no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. So he's saying the land is going to be so prosperous that there's probably not going to be much of this going on. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these, things, all these commandments which I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. So it's very interesting in the light of our current uh, fiscal situation here in the United States of America that God looks at a nation and says a nation that's in a healthy place lends to other nations does not borrow. And it's interesting, in my lifetime, the United States has gone from being the greatest lending nation in the world to the greatest debtor nation in the world. Not because of me, 
I hate debt. I hate debt. I can't live with it. I mean, it's involuntary. It isn't like a thing of, well, I could try to do it or so. I can't live with it. So elect me for Congress. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it, it, it's serious. And the reason is because the Bible says that the borrower is a servant to the lender. We, to, to the degree that we find ourselves in debt is the degree that we have forfeited our sovereignty and our freedom. It's not a very good place. So the Lord was saying, listen, you obey me, you do right, you be good to people like this, and, and you're going to be on the right side of that whole thing. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And so the Lord, all the way through the Bible, from one end to the other, he has a great soft heart toward the poor and toward the powerless. And he's basically saying to the children of Israel, I am going to prosper you, but I am not going to prosper you for the sole purpose that you can accumulate enough money for ten lifetimes. I'm going to prosper you so your needs can be met, but so that you can also look at the poor, and when people find themselves in that place, legitimately poor, that you can help them in their time of need. He is not talking about the lazy bum. You'll excuse my uh, candor here. He's talking about the working poor. He's talking about the kind of person that exists in our borders where no matter how hard they work, how much they try, how many hours they get, you never look at them and you say, that guy's a sluggard, that guy's a slacker, that guy's a no good. I mean, it's the hardest working person, you know, and all. But boom, out goes the transmission. Out goes the hot water heater. Out here comes the broken arm and the child's life and this kind of thing. And they, and they can't in what they do accumulate enough to get ahead and that kind of thing. Got a hard-working person that somebody's supposed to come alongside and, and help. The Bible says about the person, the Bible says that if New Testament-wise, and all the way through, you look in Proverbs and elsewhere in the Old Testament, God condemns laziness from one end of the book to the other also. This is a lazy person just basically gets what he gets. And the lazy person is to experience hunger because hunger can become a tremendous motivation for work. In the New Testament, Paul wrote concerning Christians. And, and uh, writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, listen, if you've got people there who won't work, we're not talking about can't work. If they won't work, then don't feed them. Don't feed, you're not helping them. Tell them to go get a job and work and support themselves. Otherwise, they're just going to be busybodies and ruining the witness of Christ in your city. So this is what he's talking about. So, but you can't let the, you know, the, the group that's working the system and, and that whole thing. I mean, I remember talking with one guy. How much time have I got? It's three minutes. Okay. Um, talking with one guy years ago. He came to know the Lord. Just a great, and he's walking with the Lord to this day and everything. But he used to scam the rest stops along Highway 99. He said, he said it'd take him 45 minutes to walk away with 300 bucks every single day. It was nothing. Nothing to scam people for money on things. And so you can't let that group of people keep us from having God's heart poured over here. Here's a person, they've hit a tough spot here, this kind of a deal, and they need a, a hand up. And I'll tell you, that can happen in any of our lives. just takes two or three things kind of clustering. No matter what a person's margins are, we can find ourselves in that, that place. So that's what was supposed to happen. Beware lest, uh, and the Lord knows that this is something we're going to kind of fight against because we're selfish from Adam and Eve. We're not going to blame them. It's what we are. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, Wow, okay, well, I'm hiring him on the fifth year, and he owes me a bunch of money here, and I'm only going to get two years of work out of him, and the whole thing, and so, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to uh, obey this law of God. So beware that, uh, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand. 
and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You don't give him a chance to work his debt off. You shall surely give to him, and your heart, uh, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Had a verse in the Bible right here that could have told all of us, communism will never work. It'll never dominate, it'll, it would never dominate the world, the redistribution of worth, wealth. The poor you will have with you all, always. Jesus said the same thing himself. There'll always be an opportunity to help the poor if we have a heart to do that. And, and the poor that where help will make a difference in their life. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and needy in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you, and when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. So out he goes, he's got the shirt on his back, but instead you shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with. Don't forget you got it from someone, buckaroo. You shall give to him, and you shall remember. Think that you're not above this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God lifted you out of that, redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. So if you let a person out, they work the, the, the six years, you let them out the seventh year, but they don't have any chance of, of starting a new life. What do they got to do? They got to walk down the street and sell themselves to somebody else. They have no chance of remaining free. So the Lord said, you know, look to, to help this person not just keep their belly full, but, but be able to move forward in their life. And if it happens that he says to you, this seventh year comes and the servant comes to you as the master and says, I will not go away from you. And, and he does it because he loves you and your house. He loves serving you. Since he prospers with you, then you shall take in all and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. And so here you have uh, this case of a situation where you've got this bond servant, and they look at it and they say, listen, I know you're going to release me, it's the seventh year, but I don't want to go. I, you can't send me anywhere out there where I know I will have it better than I have it is your servant. And, and so when a person did that, they could make themselves a lifelong servant to that master and they'd take him to the uh, main entry of the house, put their earlobe against the wood of that, drive an awl through that, maybe put an earring in it, and that... that pierced ear would forever be a mark that they were a bondservant of their, their master. And a bondservant was someone who made this commitment, number one, voluntarily. Number two, they did it because of their love for their master. And number three, it was a commitment for life. That's a bondservant. And that's why Paul Several times in the New Testament, when he introduces letters that he wrote, he declared himself, described himself to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he refers us back to this imagery to give us insight into the kind of heart that he had toward the Lord in his service to the Lord. He said, I serve the Lord voluntarily. I serve him because he, I love him. He's been nothing but good to me. And when I signed up for this, I signed up for life. That's what he was communicating, his commitment. I, there is no higher title that you can have in life than to be called a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul, this is what he's referring to here when he talks about that. 
And so, if, he, uh, if it shall not seem hard to you, you shall send him away, talking about these other servants that will be sent away, send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years, and then the Lord your God will bless you for having taken care of, of that servant. So if a guy goes, man, I'll tell you, he, he owed me, you know, uh, 60 grand, and I, and I got this much out of him, and I wish I could have got more out of him. God said, listen, you had to hire two hired servants to get the work you got out of the guy. You did all right, and even if you kind of uh, got on the wrong end of that kind of thing, I'm going to take care of you because I noticed what you did to help someone else. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord. That belonged to God. It was to be sacrificed to God. You, sh- they shall, you shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd or shear the firstborn of your flock. This is so sad that God has to say this to us. It's like the guy says, all right, I got this firstborn here and all. I just, and of this, this lamb right here, I'd like to, you know, get about like two years of wool off it before I give it to God. And so he, he knows we're going to want to give him used stuff. He wants the new stuff, he wants the best, and he knows we're going to try and find some way to kind of get a little something out of this thing, you know, put about 30,000 miles on it and then give it to God. God said, don't do that. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year after year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, in in the firstborn of an animal, if it's lame or blind or it has any serious defect, that doesn't count as a sacrifice. You can't give that to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. Uh, The unclean and the clean ceremonial person may eat it just as if it were gazelle or deer or any other food uh, because that's all it is. It's not offered to the Lord. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Let's stand together. Worship team, you come forward and... We'll get a chance to close things up. Interesting laws, all these different ways that the Lord gave them in order to uh, demonstrate themselves to be a holy and a different people in the world. Mm. Let's pray together.